Welcome to the Refresh from Insider. I'm Carrie Donahue. And I'm Rebecca Knight. It's Friday, November 4th, and we've got the latest news you need and want to know. Plus, we talked to one TV writer from the hit show The Office about what it was like being one of the only Black writers in the room. And I was finding out that a lot of shows just didn't want to have diverse writer in their room. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what's the reason behind that? But first, here's the latest. Job growth was stronger than expected in October, despite the Federal Reserve's campaign to raise interest rates and cool what Fed Chair Jerome Powell describes as an overheated labor market. There are still nearly two jobs for every available unemployed worker. According to the government's new monthly report, average hourly earnings grew 4.7 percent from a year ago, and unemployment nudged up one-tenth of a percent to 3.7 percent. The report is the last snapshot American voters will have on the state of hiring, wages, and unemployment before the midterm elections on Tuesday. Twitter employees have launched a class action lawsuit against the company as Elon Musk prepares to fire roughly half of its workforce today. Bloomberg had the scoop on this one. The lawsuit says that Twitter is violating federal and California state laws that prevent big companies from issuing mass layoffs without 60 days advance notice. Musk had sent a letter Thursday warning that about 3,700 employees would soon be out of work. A judge in Washington state has temporarily blocked the grocery store chain Albertsons from paying a $4 billion dividend to investors on Monday. The payment is part of the food retailer's proposed merger with rival Kroger. The court says it needs more time to fully consider whether the payment, as part of that merger, violates antitrust laws. That's according to the Seattle Times. Kroger announced its plans to buy Albertsons for nearly $25 billion last month. If it gets approved by the Federal Trade Commission, the deal would combine two of the nation's largest grocery store chains. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is reportedly interested in buying the Washington Commanders football team, and he might be trying to lure in Jay-Z as a potential investor. People magazine first reported this, and it was later confirmed by The Washington Post. The beleaguered NFL team might be up for sale. The team and its owners, Daniel and Tanya Snyder, are under investigation by both the NFL as well as the state and federal government for financial improprieties and workplace harassment. The Snyders hired an investment bank this week to consider a transaction, and the franchise is said to be worth $5.6 billion. A disgruntled customer called 911 this week after ordering chopped pork at one of North Carolina's oldest and best-known barbecue joints. The emergency? The meat looked pink and undercooked. The pink color is normal for smoked meats, by the way. The USDA even confirms it. Still, she complained to the owners of Clyde Cooper's Barbecue and told the Raleigh News Observer that when she didn't get a refund, she called the cops. Police declined to comment. She left a one-star Google review later that night. Did you know you can share any of our segments on social media? Just look at the description section in your podcast app and you'll see a little share link next to each story. It's super easy. Give it a try. 
Paul Pelosi has finally been released from the hospital six days after an intruder brutally attacked him in his home. He had surgery to fix a fracture in his skull, but he's expected to make a full recovery. The attacker, 42-year-old David DePop, faces a handful of charges, including attempted murder and attempted kidnapping. Immigration officials have also confirmed DePop is a Canadian citizen who is in the U.S. illegally and could be deported after the criminal cases are resolved. The FBI now says it has identified a person behind threats to the Jewish community in New Jersey. That's hours after issuing a warning earlier today about a broad threat to synagogues made online. The agency says the unnamed man holds radical views defined by a, quote, extreme amount of anti-Semitism. Investigators have told law enforcement and local Jewish leaders that he's no longer a threat, but it's unclear if they've taken him into custody. New Jersey has seen violent anti-Semitic attacks in recent years, including a firebombing at a rabbi's home that led to a 35-year prison sentence. The Brooklyn Nets suspended star point guard Kyrie Irving calling him, quote, unfit to be associated with the team for his repeated failure to say he has no anti-Semitic views. This is after Irving last week posted a link on Twitter to a movie with hateful claims about Jewish people. Irving had refused to apologize despite the backlash, but late Thursday night after his suspension, he relented, finally saying sorry in a post on Instagram. Irving has been suspended without pay for at least five games. A New York judge has ordered a monitor to oversee the Trump organization. That's because the state's attorney general says the former president's business is still engaged in fraudulent activity. Trump recently created another company in Delaware, the uniquely named Trump Organization 2, and there are concerns that assets may be improperly transferred from one to the other. A sweeping criminal trial against the business is currently underway in New York. Would you want your business to be used as a battleground in a violent video game? Well, that's what one Amsterdam hotel is dealing with after it appeared without permission in the newest edition of the massively popular Call of Duty franchise. Now the Conservatorium Hotel is considering legal action against Activision Blizzard, the company behind the first-person shooter game. And it's not the only one. A museum that closely resembled LA's Getty Museum was also included in the beta version of the game, but mysteriously seriously disappeared in the final release. Dave Smith is back from paternity leave. He's here a couple of days a week, and he left us this interview. And now a look into one man's career as a black TV writer, which he describes as a, quote, weird-ass roller coaster. Anthony Q. Farrell was a writer and executive story editor on NBC's hit comedy, The Office. But after two seasons, he was laid off. And despite working for one of the greatest comedies ever, he was surprised at how difficult it was to find TV work afterwards. He's here to tell us his story, why he thinks his race played a role, and where he is now. So, Anthony, you were a writer on The Office for two seasons, right? Season four and season five. So what were some of the highlights for you on a personal level? I remember my first day on set, Greg Daniels had this thing where he would have the writers always be on set. And so I got to be down there while he was directing Fun Run. And I remember just thinking, oh, it'd be kind of funny if Steve Carell said this. And I was like, Greg, what if Steve said this? And he was like, yeah, that's great. Go tell him. And I was like, what? (laughs) And I had to like walk over to like Steve Carell and be like, hi, Mr. Carell, I'm Anthony, um, one of the new writers. I was thinking of maybe we'd pitch you this joke and I pitched and he's like, oh, okay, great. And then, you know, he did the line and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm in. This is happening. <laughs> that must have been surreal. Yeah. It's just, 
I know it was that Hollywood dream, right? Like, you know, like as a kid growing up, like in Toronto and in the Caribbean, just wanting to one day be able to like make TV and stuff. That is so, so cool. So you said in your piece that you were hired as part of an NBC diversity program. So the office had two spots for writers of color and you got one of them. How did that program actually work? So like what they'll do is they'll offer these spots to writers of color to get them in on the ground floor and hopefully things work out and you get experience and you get to move on up. And the studios would pay for the writers so it wouldn't come out of the show's budget. It would just come out of like the studio's diversity fund. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on the program itself having been part of it? It's like Catch-22 that it's kind of like there are great things about it because I got the credit. I use it to further my career. But there are also parts of it that are just like difficult. And there's also the stigma attached to it where it's like, oh, well, you couldn't get a job on your own. So obviously you're not as good a writer, which is not the case because there are so many writers who are doing really well that use these programs to gain access that they wouldn't normally have because of the color of the skin or because of just the way the way things work. I mean, just reality, if you look at TV writers, most of the writers are white men. Like that's just who's been writing these shows for a long time. And Right. So after season five, you were laid off with a number of others on the show, but you had some momentum coming off the office, but what happened? Yeah. It's one of those things where it was like, I was leaving the office and I was kind of like in a good mood, but you'd have meetings. I had a lot of meetings. And just it just didn't go anywhere to jobs. And some of the excuses I was getting was like, you know, we've we've got a room full, we have less spots for writers right now. And so if you didn't really know someone, it was hard to kind of get into those spaces because they're always kind of giving them to people that that they knew. And uh, it just took a little bit longer than I had expected. Sure. What other sorts of things did you do during that time while you were looking for more consistent income? Yeah, it's a lot of stress. I finally got to a place where I could call myself a working writer and I'm in the business. And after like years of office jobs and hustling and grinding and doing stand up late at night and improv and sketch comedy and all kinds of stuff to get myself to a position where I was like set, then all of a sudden I was no longer set. So I got a job teaching SAT prep with Kaplan. I got a job at Macy's slanging them shirts and ties. <laughs> it was it was like one of those things where it was like, I thought I had something. It wasn't what I thought it was. It was the world was not what I thought it was going to be after that first job. But it was just kind of like, all right, time to pivot and figure things out. You know, you said that being Black absolutely had something to do with your difficulty finding other writing jobs after the show. Could you elaborate? Yeah, it's one of those things where I just, you think to yourself, oh, if someone's giving you a free writer, to be on your show, you would take that writer. And I was finding out that a lot of shows just didn't want to have a diverse writer in their room. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what's the reason behind that? If someone's saying, here's another person who's really talented, who's really good, they will help you make your show, give you experience and a point of view and perspective and all those things. And you're like, uh, we'd rather not have them here. Like, they were afraid that having a writer of color in their room meant there are going to be consequences and they were going to have to like mind their P's and Q's and be afraid of what they're saying. And so, yeah, it wasn't just me. It was a lot of writers who were, because they're people of color, they weren't invited into those spaces and places. And it was just like, it was very clear to me that that was the case. Well, I think it says more about them than it says about you for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you did manage to get back into entertainment through a friend. So let's talk about what you're doing now. So you're show running a couple of different shows. How does that feel for you, especially compared to your early days as a writer on The Office? It is so great to be able to kind of do for other writers what Greg and those other writers did for me, like be a mentor. And one of my biggest things right now is trying to, now that I'm back in Canada, help the Canadian television industry find ways to incorporate more creative voices of color and to 
uh, have writers be a bigger part in their own stories and just be a part of the process. That's great. So, Anthony, what's your advice for people, especially people of color, who are trying to make their way in the television industry? You know, it's one of those things where you can't do it alone. Find people who are like-minded, who hustle like you, who work hard like you, who want to do sort of similar things, figure out ways to lift each other up, find ways to help each other. I feel like a lot of times people see this as a competition. It's really more about the teamwork. Like if you can, if you can figure out ways to, to help someone else get up and they'll help you get up too. And it just push together. That's great. Anthony, thank you so much for chatting. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Anthony Q. Farrell is a showrunner, writer, and executive producer. Make sure to follow the Refresh from Insider on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover the show. The Refresh from Insider is produced by Grace Eliza Goodwin, Frank Alito, Dan Gooding, Rob Gunther, Rebecca Ibarra, and Dave Smith. I'm Rebecca Knight. And I'm Carrie Donahue, the executive producer. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.